Amen. If you got your Bibles, you know where we're going? Mark. That's the correct answer for the next 43 weeks. So get your Bible, put your bookmark in it. Mark chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we uh, ended last week in chapter 1 as we jump into this study of the book of Mark. Christian Herder may not be a familiar household name to, to many of you, but he was a governor of the state of Massachusetts and went on to be the Secretary of State for the United States, playing a crucial role during the Cold War. One day, as he was uh, campaigning for a second term as governor in the state of Massachusetts, he's crisscrossing the state with these meetings and um, all these rallies and everything going on. He had not gotten a chance to eat. Finally gets to a church where they're having a rally later that afternoon and they have a barbecue, a classic church barbecue. And as he's walking down the line, he says, um, he puts out his plate and a lady sets a piece of chicken on his plate to which he responds, Hey, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm, I'm absolutely starving. I don't think you know. I'm so hungry, the governor replied. Sorry, the woman said, only one per person. Now, those who knew Governor Herter knew that he didn't throw around his name. He didn't like try to get special privileges very often. But this time he decided that he was going to use the name game to his advantage. So he said, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. The woman replied, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> now, we laugh, but you've probably seen or been a part of that encounter, that exchange in your story, right? In your life where you've seen somebody who obviously had authority and then you've seen somebody who was given some type of authority, but probably took it to mean a little bit more authority than it actually was. Today, we're talking about this topic of authority. We're talking about the authority, not of a governor and not of the chicken lady. We're talking about the authority of Jesus. Last week, as Mark opened his gospel, we saw in the first 11 verses in rapid fire fashion, Mark is affirming through four witnesses who Jesus is, affirming his identity. Mark testifies to it. The prophets had foretold it. John the Baptist declared it. And ultimately, God spoke it at Jesus' baptism. Today, as we jump into these next few verses, we're going to see Mark shift from his identity of Jesus to the authority of Jesus. If he was the long-awaited king, and if he was God, then the authority that came with him, we should see evidence in how he spoke and what he did and how he interacted with people in his ministry. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 12 today. And I wanted to just read through these 16 verses. Uh, we're going to jump in, and then we're going to really jump into four different sections this week as we identify Jesus' authority in temptation, Jesus' authority in preaching, his authority in calling, and ultimately his, his authority in healing. So verse, chapter 1, verse 12 says this, The Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness. Remember from last week, he'd just been baptized. God had just spoken. You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. So immediately... Here we see immediately again and again throughout the book of, of Mark. You see it several times in our text today. Immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw John, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We talked last week that Mark is going to move very quickly we talked about the theme of immediately and you saw it again and again in this passage and you see him literally jumping from this scene to this scene to this scene to this scene. He's creating urgency. He's creating excitement and he's specifically wanting us to not miss who Jesus is and the authority with which he is going to go about his ministry. In verse 12, he talks about the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. The wilderness is a theme in these verses. It's listed twice wilderness, wilderness. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. People were going out to the wilderness. Wilderness is a theme in scripture. You see again and again, God's people encountering God where? In the wilderness. And you see the wilderness, maybe different things come to mind for you when you think of wilderness. You see, wilderness has the word wild in it, right? And so being in West Cobb, like we think of wilderness and some of you go so far as to go, oh yeah, I've been in the wild before. I've walked Kennesaw Mountain. Like that's not wilderness. That's not what's being communicated here. Some of your translations may translate wilderness desert. Like wilderness is wild. Wilderness is lifeless. Wilderness has nothing to sustain life. Therefore, nothing is living there. So the fact that Jesus goes into the wilderness is a reminder of all the times in the Old Testament we found people in the wilderness. Jacob wrestles with God in the wilderness. The Israelite people for 40 years wander the wilderness, get drawn out of Egypt and meet God at Sinai in the wilderness. Again and again, Elijah in the wilderness is running, hiding from Jezebel. It's the wilderness is a place devoid of life, but it is a place where God's people meet God. And I think, I believe that's true of us. Well, you and I don't spend a lot of time in the desert in that wilderness. I'm guessing every single person in this room has had seasons in their life that you would describe as seasons of wilderness. Seasons where you wondered and questioned if God would provide, if God would show up, if God would do what he said he would do. And here's the deal. Sometimes we find ourselves in seasons of wilderness and it's because we've made choices that have led to that season of wilderness. There have been consequences and results from our choices. Other times, there have been times we find ourselves in the wilderness and it has nothing to do with us. It's just a season of life that has come to us. When we see Jesus step into the wilderness, he's reminding us that he too has been, has been in a place completely and utterly dependent on God for his basic needs. 
in this passage here, just as he, with this temptation, I want us to look at where Jesus goes, what he experiences, and who he is with. You see, when you think of wilderness, you may come up with different ideas. One of the things that comes to my mind is our students have gone several times to Peru, and they minister to a church in a city called Cusco. Now, Cusco is about 350, 400 miles from Lima. So you fly into Lima, which is on the coast, and then you have to get to Cusco. And so you have two options. You can take an hour and a half flight or you can take a 21-hour drive. Which choice do you think we take? Yeah, hour and a half flight. Well, as you're flying, you're looking over and you're looking out and what you see is wilderness. Like there's nothing there. Like you, you see these roads and it's like, there is no one there knows how to draw a line from point A to point B, right? Because the line, they just got to follow the topography and all these, they're twisting and winding. And you can see why 400 miles takes 21 hours to traverse because it's stark, it's desolate. There's nothing there. That is where Jesus finds himself. And who does he encounter? He encounters Satan. Mark tells us, interestingly, Mark doesn't give us any details around what happens and how the temptation goes down. If you know Matthew and you know Luke, they give a little more context to what happens and how Jesus was tempted and what all the different phases of the temptation. Mark doesn't give us that information. And once again, I think because he doesn't want us to get lost in all the details, he wants us to see the truth of why something happened. You see, if you're reading along through the Bible with us this year, then you have this week, just this week, got to the book of Exodus. And just this morning, you got to Exodus 16. Exodus 16 is where God, his people are wandering the wilderness where they have nothing to eat and he gives them manna. You see, when Jesus is baptized, he doesn't go to get baptized as we saw last week because he had sinned and he needed to repent. He came to associate and identify himself with the people of Israel. In the same way, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days as a picture and a reminder of who else went into the wilderness. Not for 40 days, but for 40 years. The Israelite people wandered and waited because they didn't trust God's best. Because they didn't trust God's promise. So now... We don't have just a sidebar. We have what actually Mark here in verse 12 and 13 is reminding us. This is the main plot of the entire story of the world. Because Jesus with Satan is reframing, is going to correct way back when in Genesis 3, when Satan was in the garden with Adam. You see, Jesus meets Satan and we hear Satan and we just think it's Satan. That's his name. Well, Satan means adversary. Mark is introducing us to the villain and the hero of the ultimate story right here. This is the enemy that Jesus came to conquer. This is the battle that he came to win. John succinctly describes it this way. We think about why Jesus came and all the things that he came to do, but the reality is you can boil it down to one mission. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. He came to undo all that Satan had done and he came to offer us what we could not get on our own, which was life. Which is why John earlier in John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to kill, steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
That's why Jesus came and Mark is setting this up at the front of his gospel to remind us of the battle that happened here, to remind us of the battle that happened in the garden and ultimately to point to a battle that's gonna happen again in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And while you and I look at this and we know, well, I know how the story plays out, we seem to can miss the weight of the moment that Mark is pointing to. Really, your history, my history, the history of the world hangs in the balance right now because if Jesus does not walk this battle out, if he doesn't win this battle, there's no hope to win the war. You see, the Bible is very clear that God is ultimately in, is in charge. But the Bible is also clear in pointing to the fact that Satan does have power. Check this out. Just a couple references. We live in the present evil age, Galatians 1.4, where Satan is described as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, who is the father of lies, John 8.44, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. We picture the enemy, we picture Satan as this cute little red guy with a pitchfork. But the reality is he has power. And let me ask you this. Why, how did Satan get his power? Because that, what we just read, has not always been true. It came true. It happened because somebody bought a lie. Satan has his power because of what happened in the garden. Satan has his power because his temptation worked. And Adam and Eve bought it. And as a result, The only power that the enemy has is to take what God has given and twist it and make what is good bad, to make what is true a lie. When we're watching a football game, you might hear commentators point to the fact of a one-dimensional or a two-dimensional team, right? A two-dimensional team is a team that can throw and a team that can run the ball. And it's much harder for a defense to defend a two-dimensional team because we don't know what you're going to do. And you're going to fake the handoff and then you're going to throw or you're going to throw and then we don't know where you're going to go. And so a defense, one of the parts of a defense would be if we can force you to be one-dimensional, it's a whole lot easier for us to defend you. Here's what's interesting. In our battle with the enemy, the adversary, he is one-dimensional. He only has one dimension. He can only take what God has given and twist it and make it a lie. He can only take the truth and subvert it. Yet, just like in football, you can have some really good teams that are only one dimensional. Satan is pretty effective at what he is trying to do. When he tempts Jesus, it's the same strategy and the same tactic that he uses when he's tempting you and me. Because at the core, temptation hasn't changed. Hasn't changed since the garden in chapter three of Genesis. It's the same narrative all the way through. And in your life, in my life today, temptation boiled down is simply this. I don't trust God. I don't trust what he has for me. Instead, I want what I want for me. And the enemy knows that. And so what he does is he puts a lie inside our head that says, hey, guess what? I think this is better. I think what God gave you isn't enough. I think he doesn't really have your best interest at heart. And so at the center of temptation is always Satan trying to get us to believe and get us to question the true heart of God. And here, as Mark opens his gospel, he puts Jesus and Satan in the wilderness where Jesus is completely dependent and he's gonna win. But it's a foretaste of the battle that is yet to come. 
The first temptation was in a garden paradise. Here, Jesus is in a wilderness desert. The first Adam failed. The second Adam succeeds. It's interesting for you and I, when we read this, we think, well, yeah, of course Jesus won. He's God. Like, but the reality is, the reason Mark gives us this and the reason we have this is so that we are reminded that Jesus had a choice. He had a choice. But oftentimes we under, undervalue the choice that he had and we think that, well, he didn't really experience all of that we have experienced. He doesn't know how hard it really is because guess what? He never sinned. So he never got to the place where I have, where my life is so entangled in sin and I can't get it right and I just can't do it right. And the next time it's the same thing again and again. Jesus never knew that. Well, Paul David Tripp gives a great example. He points to a strong man who has a, takes these metal bars and he takes a metal bar and he goes, now which bar do you think experiences the greatest strength, has the greatest resistance? And the guy takes one bar and it's like a, a smaller bar and he takes it, twist, twists it to a 90 degree angle and snaps it. And then he takes another one, which is a little bigger, and he twists it and twists it and bends it and bends it. And everything he has is, is exerted and trying to break this bar and it doesn't break. And Paul David Tripp goes, which one? experienced a greater level of stress. It's the second, because it never broke. See, the reality is you and I have all broken under temptation. We've all messed up. Jesus never did. So Jesus, by definition, has experienced a greater degree of temptation, pressure, and stress from the enemy than you and I ever could. Therefore, you and I have somebody who the writer of Hebrews will point to later who has been tempted in every way yet is without sin. That is the one who is your advocate. That is the one who is with you. That is the one who is for you. That is the one who has ultimate authority over this adversary. You and I are not helpless victims of temptation. Jesus is showing us that victory is possible through the same power of his spirit that dwells in his followers today. Now check this out. Once again, Mark is giving us a little hint at something that's going on, an encouragement that is here that we may miss. He ends by saying, Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, some point to this and go, well, this is Mark talking about the beginning. He's talking about the garden. He's trying to draw this parallel between the garden and now the temptation here. And so just like Adam was with the animals, so Jesus is with the animals. I don't think that's, that's actually correct. What I believe is more accurate is that just like we talked about last week, the Christians were under, in Rome, were under a great persecution. And one of the ways they'd be persecuted would be they would be attacked by wild animals. So Mark is literally going, hey, don't forget Jesus, this king we've talked about, this, this, this long-awaited Messiah who was just like you in the presence of wild animals and just like you, his, God's angels are attending to his needs. It's a reminder that Jesus has been in a place like you and me where we're wondering, am I alone? Have I been forgotten? And Mark is saying, Jesus wasn't forgotten by God. Neither have you. You're not alone. So we see Jesus' authority over temptation. And it's a, a precursor to what we're going to see played out throughout the rest of the book and ultimately end in the garden. Our future hangs in the balance. And next we see his authority in preaching. Here, for the very first time, Jesus speaks. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Mark is signaling a significant scene change, right? John the Baptist was center, front and center. He was the celebrity. Everybody knew about John the Baptist. And in this sentence in verse 14, he's moving John to the side. John's time is over and Jesus' time is now. And it says exactly what Jesus came. He came to proclaim the gospel of God. Now we think about gospel and the next word you probably think about is church because gospel is a religious term. But the reality, we talked a little bit about this last week, gospel was not a religious term. Gospel was actually a political term when it came to those days. What's interesting is that Jesus was the first one to talk about the gospel being applied to the good news of what God was doing. An inscription was discovered from the sixth century BC and it was talking about the gospel, but it wasn't talking about Jesus. It was talking about Augustus. It was talking about who would become emperor of Rome. And in the inscription was written the beginning of the good news for the world. What was good news for the world? That Augustus had been born, that a new emperor was coming, which ironically is really similar to how Mark opens his gospel we saw last week. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus comes to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God. What is that gospel? Here we go back to what we talked about just a couple weeks ago when we talked about making disciples. Throughout the New Testament, there's this pattern, there's this rhythm where we hear the indicatives or we get a statement of fact, what's true, what God has done, followed by an imperative, which is how we are to respond. And we talked last week, a couple weeks ago, hey, we can't mix those, right? If we get stuck on the imperatives, this is what I have to do in order to make this thing happen. All of a sudden, our religion, our faith has become based on what we're doing instead of what God's doing. So we got to keep them in order. Here, the same formula is, is found where the indicatives are given. He gives, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the time Time is at hand. Who did that? Jesus did that. God sent Jesus. When? At this time, right now. What was happening? It was a fulfillment of all that had been promised. The indicatives, the facts are, Jesus has come. The long-awaited king is in fact here. When? Now. So what's our response? The response and any response at any time to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the fact that he's come is simply this. Repent and believe. Turn, repent, means to turn, saying, my way won't work. I will go your way. And then believe, trusting that God's way is in fact best. If you want to summarize the gospel in a nutshell, it's simply this. I can't, you can. I give up. I surrender. I I can't do this life my own. I can't, my way is not working out for me. There's no way I can get to God. Therefore, I wave the right white flag saying, I can't, but you can. I repent and I believe. That's the core of Jesus's message. That's his authority. His authority says you can't, but I can. And he goes on in verse 16. We see his authority and calling. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, this is a great example of a passage that if you've been around church, you've heard before and you get the gist of it. 
And you know, it's actually kind of a pretty poetic, cool picture, right? Jesus walking along the seashore, sees a couple guys and says, hey, follow me. And then they drop everything and they follow him. And a couple more guys, hey, follow me. And they drop everything and follow him. But what we miss is some of the earth shattering reality that Mark is pointing to here that we miss because we don't know the culture. You see, in those days, it was not uncommon for there to be disciples of rabbis. The people who would sit under a rabbi's teaching, learning from them, or their interpretation of scripture and how they would go about their business. But here's the deal. Rabbis never called followers. You asked to follow a rabbi. We don't know. We don't know this backstory of, of Jesus' disciples. We don't know how many of them maybe had gone to a rabbi, asked, can I follow you, and been told no. But here, the fact that Jesus is coming and saying, hey, I'm calling you would have been earth shattering. It would have been completely abnormal. And here's the other thing. He says, follow me. That, while we know that's what Jesus calls us to do, what you don't know or maybe don't recognize or haven't seen before is Jesus is saying, follow me when the only person we are supposed to follow is God. So when Jesus tells these guys, follow me, he's actually making a claim of his divinity. So a rabbi who comes defying social norms and saying, I will call you, you're not asking to follow me. I'm initiating, I'm the one pursuing, I'm the one who came after you. And guess what? You're gonna follow me. Was earth shattering. And then here's what it sells. Something that's poetic that is, has so much meaning. I love this. Jesus, maybe you've read this before and you picture Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these guys and he goes, hey, they're, they're fishermen. How can I like kind of compel them to follow me? Oh, I got an idea. It'd be pretty cool. Like you're fishing for fish. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You know, he's thinking like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. That's pretty clever. That wasn't Jesus' thinking. Jesus wasn't connecting to the fact that these guys were fishermen. He was connecting to the fact that the Old Testament foretold that God would call fishers of men. Check this out. Jeremiah 16, 16 says, Behold, I'm sending for many fishers. Who? Who is I? God. God is sending for fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. This is God talking about how his people are, he's going to draw all people to himself. Part of drawing all people to himself is going to be fishers who are going to catch people. So when Jesus says, you are going to be called fishers of men, he's connecting the, hey, following me, not just a human rabbi, but following God means you are going to help me do what God has said he's going to do from the beginning. This is earth shattering. This is a testimony to the incredible authority with which Jesus steps on the scene with. Which leads us to a really important question. What should our response be when Jesus, who is in fact God, says, follow me? Was that just an invitation for these four guys and ultimately 12 guys? Or is that an invitation that is extended and a response that is required from you and me today if we are to call ourselves Jesus followers? See, I think it comes down to a couple words. It comes down to commitment versus surrender. Commitment 
Sounds good, right? Like we have a lot of things in our world that are tied to commitments, college athletics being one, right? Some kid signs and says, I'm committed to going to this school. And guess what? He is committed to going to that school until what? Until he's not. And he changes his commitment. And he goes over here. A commitment, if I'm going to make a commitment to you, I'm committing something. Something has been determined. There's something you want. There's something you need. There's something I'm going to give. So a commitment is limited. Surrender is all in. Surrender is saying, I'm not giving you a certain something. I'm not giving you a certain amount of time. I'm not giving you a certain amount of money. I'm not giving you, you fill in the blank. I'm giving you all. Now, picture of that, I think, is demonstrated by one of these. Anybody know what this is? It's a checkbook. I like it. A with the question mark. Yes. I got this out of a museum. <laughs> Anyone under the age of 30, we're going to have a quick lesson. A check, right? When you write a check, which let's, let's do this. This is a straw poll in the first service. How many of you guys still balance a checkbook? Okay. We got two of you. Three of you. Awesome. You can give a lesson to the rest of us. For, the, for those of you that do, we do have this thing called online banking. It makes it a lot easier. Um, checkbook. If you've never written a check, you pull one of these checks out. You got to write who it's to. You got to write how much it's for. And then what's a really important part of a check? The signature. You got to sign the bottom of the check. And when they, you give this check to someone, they're going to take it wherever they want to cash it. And if that signature has to match the signature they have on file to say that you are actually authorized to write that check. Now, because of that, we don't just get a checkbook and sign all the checks. We sign a check once we've written a check. Because I don't know about you, we don't like giving out blank checks. If you get a check that has no name on it, no amount on it, but a signature on it, what can you do with that? I mean, you can guess how much money is in the account and write it. You see, Jesus, when he calls his disciples, and I believe when he invites us, because of his authority, he's not asking for us to write a check for a certain amount. He's not asking us for to give a certain something. He's asking us to give him a blank check. That's what surrender is. Surrender is saying, okay, I see who you are. Based on the gospel that you are preaching, my only response can be to repent and to believe. And therefore, in following you, I'm not following you because of what I can get from you. I am following you because I've given everything to you. And here's the deal. When we read passages like this, and then later in Mark, we'll read a, Mark 10 has the passage of the rich young ruler. What's easy within circles like this is to go, hey, is God then asking for me to give up everything? Is God asking me to sell everything, give it to the poor, and move to another country? I don't know. What I do know is that I believe God is asking us to surrender. Years ago, when Danielle and I, after Danielle and I had gotten married, we had several friends that were that were doing some crazy things, that were selling everything, were going, moving overseas, that were starting nonprofits, that were doing all of these great things in the name of ministry. And Danielle and I found ourselves looking around going, I'm in corporate world, she's a teacher. We're going, what are we supposed to do? God, do you want us to, to sell all of this, to let, leave all of this, to go do something spiritual for you? 
What we sense then and what I believe God continues to invite his people into is going, maybe, but it starts with surrender. It starts with open hands saying, God, what I have is yours. Because of your identity, because of your authority, I can hold my life with open hands and saying, God, what I have is yours. The answer's yes. It's much easier to commit. And to be honest, it's a whole lot easier to say, I'll sell that, do that, to show that I'm following than it is to, before God, say, what I have is yours. There's authority in Jesus's temptation, authority in his preaching. We see his authority in his call to his disciples, which comes to us as his followers today. And lastly, we see his authority demonstrated in a very public way. Check out verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teachings for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. If you've got your Bible in front of you, I would just encourage you through these passages, I would circle the word authority and I would circle the word immediately. It's all over the place and you see the urgency and you see the power within with which Jesus is speaking and doing his ministry. Once again, Mark doesn't give us any details talks about the reaction to his teaching. We don't get a single detail about what Jesus was teaching, what he was saying. All we see is the response to what he says because I think Mark wants to see us to see not, the, not what he's saying, but what, how, how what he is saying is affecting his hearers. They're astonished. They're in awe. They're in wonder, right, of the authority and the power with which Jesus is speaking. And then, it's not after the fact, they're astonished before this encounter with this evil spirit happens. The evil spirit can't even keep silent. He speaks out and Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. We're going to see several examples of Jesus healing as we move through the book of Mark. But here, as with most of them, we see demonstrated the authority with which Jesus has over all things, even the supernatural. And what's interesting throughout Mark, people are going to miss the reality of who Jesus is. But every single time, it's the evil spirits, the demons, who testify to the reality of who Jesus is. They know it, they see it, and they cannot deny it. Jesus clearly comes on the scene because there's a problem. The problem he came to fix was a problem with the evil one. He came to destroy his works. He came to set right all that was done that was wrong and all that was undone by the devil through his work of temptation. His identity has been made clear and his authority made evident by Mark here so far in his gospel. So my question for us is this, what does Jesus's authority mean for you? Do you resist it or do you rest in it? 
Do you resist it? Because here's the reality. We're not really typically big fans of authority that restricts us. We push back on authority. We push back on power because we don't want anyone telling us what to do. And Jesus, in those days, authority was a big deal. Power was a big deal. You had authority and you had power. You used it to your advantage. You used it to push people down, to push yourself up. And what Mark showed us so far, he, Jesus comes not as a king who requires that we make a way for him, that we sacrifice, that we make it smooth for him, but a God who made come, who's come to make a way for us. And in the same way here, we don't see authority being used for God's advantage. We see his authority being used for our advantage. He's through his authority, the ultimate authority, he's gonna have the authority of his very life which he's not going to allow to be taken from him because nobody has authority over Jesus. His authority is going to be demonstrated by laying his life down. Mark will continue to show us that despite his identity and authority, Jesus came to defy the expectation of how authority should be leveraged. You remember the chicken lady at the beginning of our time? Chicken lady had no idea who she was serving. I wonder how many times you and I take the role of a chicken lady, holding tightly to what we think we have, the authority we think we possess, and we forget who we're serving. We're not serving a God who's gonna demand all of the chicken. We're not gonna, we don't serve a God who will simply come and rip our life upside down and make us follow him. It's a God who will accomplish his purposes every single time, but a God who has graciously invited us to be a part of his story. A God who at the end of Matthew said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not so that I can do it all, but so that I can invite you into what I am doing. I want you to not resist my authority. I want you to rest in my authority, knowing that my authority is used to give life. My authority is used to bring life, to give life, and restore what the enemy has taken. So this morning, can I simply invite all of us, myself included, in light of the authority we've seen that Jesus has, to simply live this week, this day with open hands, saying, God, I'll let you take, I'll let you give, because everything I have is ultimately yours anyway, and I trust your authority. Rather than committing, let's be people who surrender, recognizing how hard and how hard it is, the fingers closed, we want to hold on, and how much and how great may the God what God wants to give us and have us experience as we trust him, walk in and experience the authority that he alone has as we surrender to a one who used his authority to give us life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Mark's gospel. God, we're, we're just 28 verses in and God, the pictures we see, the truth we see about who Jesus is, God, if we're honest, it's mind-blowing. It's familiar, but God, would you give us eyes to see afresh the identity and the authority of Jesus and be reminded that you have not come to simply to demonstrate your authority so all the world could see, but you came to lay, use your authority, to lay your life down so that we could have life. So God, will we be people who follow you in the very same way? 
would we be people who surrender. For all that we have and all that we are is simply offered to the God of all authority. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray.